If you have your Bibles, uh, please do take them to Luke uh, and turn them to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, this is on page 859 of the church Bibles. Uh, Luke chapter 4, where we'll pick up at verse uh, 14, uh, and we'll read through verse 30. Luke chapter 4, picking up at verse 14, and reading through verse 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Lord our God, as we come now to study your holy and errant and infallible word, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. May he open it up to us now and apply it to our hearts and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this past summer, as part of my sabbatical, uh, I spent a lot of time in the mountains uh, in Scotland. Uh, there's something uh, so special, I think, about going up into the mountains, especially early in the day, just walking, civilization fades away, and peace descends. But one of the things that I like uh, most about walking in the hills is the constant sense of wonder that comes with every corner you turn or every hill that you climb. New glorious vistas open up before you, and your heart is just filled again and again with a sense of, of wonder. One of the walks that I did, actually did it more than once, is a walk that I'd often done with my, 
with my dad when I was a, a little boy. But on that walk, we'd only ever gotten so far up this one glen. We'd walk up the, the bottom of the, the valley, and we'd get to where the path crossed the river, and we'd stop at the bridge, and we'd have a look at the water, and then we'd turn around and, and go back. It was enough for my little legs. But right at that point, the, the valley turns a, a corner. There's kind of a a shoulder of a mountain that comes down and the path intriguingly goes around the corner and goes to who knows where. And so I was determined that I was going to find out what was around that corner. And so I pressed on past the bridge and pressed on around the, the corner. And what I beheld around that corner was, was absolutely glorious. That river that had just kind of flown meanderingly around the valley floor was now cascading down these rocks as the, as the valley climbed up ahead of me. And as I walked up past those, those roaring waters, you go up and at the head of the glen, there's a, a wood and you go into that glen and suddenly it's, it's all peaceful. And you're filled with the smell of pine and there's this tremendous fauna that spreads out before you. And you go a little further within that wood and that river that had been cascading now is this, is this absolutely roaring uh, waterfall. And you go a little past that, and you, you come out the other side of the woods, and you end up on a, on a hillside, and you can look right back down the valley that you had just walked. And you see, especially uh, as the sun shines through the clouds and highlights parts of it. And then, and then you continue going up that hill, and suddenly you're on top of the hill, and, and all of the mountain range is just before you, and you feel like you're standing on top of the world. It was amazing. It was a walk in which in one glory just led to another and a constant sense of, of wonder. And, and I think, hopefully, like me, we, we've seen something of that as we've gone through Luke's gospel, haven't we? Uh, Luke didn't start his gospel with a, a gentle introduction, but he has brought us in to see Jesus with a, a bang, right? Do you remember how he began by bringing us to hear Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah and Elizabeth that despite their old age, they would bear a son, but, but their son would be the herald of the Messiah. There was no easing in to, to Luke's gospel. He, he began with a, a, a glorious vision for us, having stated his purpose. He comes in hard and fast and, and begins with this wondrous revelation that Jesus Christ was coming into the world. God made flesh. But from that point, it's as if we have turned corners, like in that valley. And with every corner we've turned, new amazing revelations of who Jesus is have been opened up for us, each one as amazing, if not more so, than the one that preceded it, and all of it building one upon another to give us an overwhelming sense of the magnificence of Jesus Christ and the spectacular glories of the saving work that He has come into the world to accomplish. And all of that, in a sense, has culminated uh, as in what we saw last week, this, this wonderful vista, as if we were brought up onto the top of the, the mountain to behold the, the mountain range before us, as, as Luke brought us in to hear what Jesus is preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. Do you remember from last week? Luke has firmly established in our minds and hearts that Jesus Christ is great David's greater son. 
right? That's, that's been the, the repeating theme of the first three chapters, the, the drumbeat of the, the gospel that, that Luke has been driving into our hearts, that Jesus is that long-awaited, promised, prophesied, anticipated, godly King who is coming to rescue His people from all of their enemies, right? That's, Luke has, been, has, has firmly established that category in our minds, but then by bringing us into the synagogue at Nazareth to hear pre- Jesus preach from Isaiah 61, you remember we said last week, Luke now brings us in to hear and to behold the wonder, not just of what Jesus is saving us from, but what Jesus is saving us to. And what we're being saved to, Jesus proclaimed, is the reality that had been long foreshadowed in the Sabbath and in the octennial sabbatical year, and then ultimately in that year of Jubilee, that that glorious sabbatical year that was to be observed every 50th year, that year of liberty, that year of abundance, that year of peace, that year of, uh, of rest. And it was, you remember we said, last week, not to re-preach last week's sermon, but remember we said last week that that great year of Jubilee was to be the closest thing that we could possibly experience living in a fallen world. It's the closest thing that we could experience to paradise. It was to be a year in which almost all the the, the groaning burdens of sins, corruptions were to be lifted. Israel brought into a year where they could just be still and know that God is God, a year when they could cease from their strivings, a year in which all the debts would be forgiven, a year in which those who had fallen on the hardest of times, and had to sell their ancestral lands and, and maybe even sell themselves into indentured servitudes, a year in which, in which all of it was forgiven and all of it reset, and the people would come home and, and rejoice in the, in the grace and mercy of God to them, a year in which the land would be released from that, that burden of, of agriculture, man no longer wrestling with creation in order to get it to bear its fruits, but, but, but a year in which it would again gladly give its fruits for the sustenance of life. A year, to use Micah's image, you remember, a year in which Israel could just come and sit every man under his fig tree. An image of, of peace. I remember hearing a uh, uh, this American Life um, story uh, about a, a man whose whose dad had come to America as a, a as a refugee, and, and what this man had gone through was was horrific. I mean, he had he had lost. I mean, he was he was a true refugee. He had come from the midst of tremendous suffering, running for his life facing enemies, uh, the sleeplessness that comes with it, the hunger that comes from it. And, and this man had come to America, and he'd been granted asylum. And, and the storyteller tells a day of where he's long gone off to university, and he comes home, and he comes into the living room, and his dad's sitting in a lazy boy, eating a mango and tapping his feet together. 
And, and to the storyteller, it was, it was the perfect image of rest and happiness. After the traumas that this man had seen, here he was, just sitting gladly in suburban America with a mango, and all was right in the world. That's what, what Micah's getting at with this idea of every man sitting under his fig tree. After all of the strivings and sorrows and wrestlings of life in this fallen world, this year of Jubilee was to be this year in which they could just sit and, and be happy. It was a, a year to be at rest. It was a kind of new Eden. And as Jesus preached in Nazareth, and as He took the scroll of Isaiah, and as He preached from Isaiah 61, you remember He proclaimed to that congregation the glorious good news that in Him, in His arrival, everything that the Sabbath and the sabbatical year and the Jubilee pointed forward to, that this favor of the Lord had found its ultimate fulfillment in Him. As Jesus stood before that congregation, He said to them that in Him the reality to which these things pointed were now fulfilled, that He was the one in whom release from the burdens of sin could be truly found, because He was the one who could truly bring us into the favor of the Lord, that through His life and His death and His resurrection, He was the one who could carry us to the Father. He was the one who could cleanse us of our sins. He was the one who could impute to us His own righteousness. He was the one who could make peace between us and heaven, bringing us into this holy new context for our lives, a context that is no longer primarily referenced and rooted to this present world and all of its stresses and strains but a new context that is otherworldly. What Jesus was preaching in Nazareth is what Paul would go on to say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, where he would say to his readers, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Right? Read it backwards. My, my, my favorite tools, read it backwards. What's he saying? One day he's saying, one day Jesus will come back and he'll make all things new. One day Jesus will return and all the burdens of sin will be finally and fully lifted and we will dwell in this glorious new heavens and the new earth. But, but don't miss how he begins. He says, but now Philippians, through your faith in Christ, your citizenship is now in heaven with Jesus. That's the context of your life. Well, think about what Peter would say to his readers in 1 Peter chapter 3. Remember, he opens that letter by calling his readers the elect exiles of the dispersion. He begins by saying to them, beloved readers, you Jews and Gentiles, your life now is one of pilgrimage through this present world. You're an exile here, a sojourner here through this, through this present world. And, and he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed at the last time. That salvation will be fully revealed at the last time, he says. But right now, right now, it's being kept in, in heaven for you. That's, that's where you live. That's the passport you carry as you walk as an exile through this land. Your citizenship is in heaven. It's the context in which you live. You have been brought into the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus is proclaiming as He stands in Nazareth and preaches to the congregation that in Him all of the desires of their hearts are found, because in Him we are brought back to God to dwell with God and rest under His benevolent care. But of course, the great question is, what will you do with that? How will you respond to that proclamation of the gospel? Having heard that Jesus is the one in whom this spectacular salvation is found, what will you do with Jesus? It's interesting, isn't it, how Luke opens this scene with this, with this little introductory vignette in verses 14 and 15, this statement in which he tells us that not only was this message received as Jesus preached it throughout Galilee, but his audiences seemingly were, were even connecting the dots and and we're understanding Him not just as the preacher of good news, not just as the preacher of the grace of God, but, but we're even somehow understanding Him as God incarnate come personally to save sinners. Look at, at what Luke writes. He says, as Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out about him throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues. And then what does he say? Being glorified by all. John Calvin, commenting on that, says, this is explicitly recorded by Luke so that we might understand that from the very beginning, the divine power glowed in Christ. From the devastating account of his battle with the devil in the wilderness, from the anguish of, of watching our Savior wrestle in his, in his starved condition with the devil in that wilderness, we are now given this glimpse of Jesus going about Galilee and preaching and declaring to the congregations that, that heard him his, the gospel of his own arrival and what it means for his hearers, proclaiming the year of Jubilee, proclaiming the glorious arrival of the kingdom of heaven proclaiming that Genesis 3.15 was at hand and the, that He, the glorious Redeemer, had come to crush the head of the devil. And what was the reception of the Galileans? It has been one of joy and delight. More than that, the response of the Galileans has been one of adoration and, and worship. These expectant Israelites understanding that as we sing at Christmas, that, that the hopes and fears of all the years are now met in Jesus. It's the right response, isn't it? It's, it's how we should respond to this gospel. 
It's as if Luke is priming us as to how we should hear Jesus preaching in Nazareth. He's saying to him, this is it. We should, we should glorify him. We should delight in him. We should, we should revel in his mercy and grace, in his patience and kindness, in his tenderness, in his, in his glories. We should, as the Sabbath's taught, we should now, having heard this news, we should give up our striving. We should cease our attempts at self-protection and self-provision, and we should fall before Him in humble defendants, glorifying God for this rich and full salvation and enjoying God as He is revealed in Jesus Christ. That we should fall before Him in humble dependence, experiencing and enjoying that renewed fellowship that we get with God only in and through Jesus Christ. That's how we should respond. We should, we should glorify Jesus having heard this gospel. But it's not how everyone responds to Him. It's not how His hometown responded to Him. Instead, having verse 22, having initially spoken well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth, their reaction Luke tells us so devastatingly, the reaction soon turns to hostility and rejection, even to the point where they, they want to murder him. It's interesting how it progresses, isn't it? Initially, as Jesus proclaimed that Isaiah 61 was fulfilled in him, the reaction, verse 21, was that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. But it becomes quickly apparent that that is not the same as the glorifying of verse 15. It would seem that what's happening here is now just more along the lines of sur surprise. This Jesus whom they had known growing up, whom they had presumably seen week in and week out at the synagogue, surprised that He was able to speak with such authority. This Jesus, this Jesus who they knew was from a poor background, this Jesus who they knew hadn't been educated in the schools of the Pharisees, they were astonished at the teaching that was coming out of his mouth. The reformer, Conrad Pelican, writes this about it. He says, most of the people here looked up to Jesus as having the highest authority and yet at the same time a different sort of gentleness. They admired his speech, which was quite different from that of the Pharisees. He spoke mildly, gently, in a friendly way with many hidden graces, never being superior or stern or arrogant, but at the same time not speaking to them as one who lacks authority. Because the words of the Pharisees flowed out of their hearts, they had the same ambition, avarice, envy, and all the other corrupt evil passions which could be found in their source. But the rest of the speech which came from the mouth of Jesus, because it flowed from His heart, was filled with the heavenly Spirit, friendly to all good things and effective to well-being. But up to this point, everyone believed Him to be the son of Joseph and Mary. And the poverty of His parents and His relatives was not unknown in the neighborhood. They knew that from His childhood. For many years, he had only learned the trade of his father and could not spend time at the discussions of the Pharisees and the experts in the law who 
teach the mysteries of the sacred schools with great eloquence. And so they were amazed that he spoke with such authority. It's an amazement that comes not from a humility standing before him, but an amazement of who, who taught him to speak like this. And it's an amazement that quickly turns into contempt, right? We, we know it from what Jesus says to them in verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. You, you, you hear that rising contempt that Jesus discerned among them. It's as if their posture to Him quickly becomes one of, okay, Jesus, these are fine words, but prove it. If you're, if you're a prophet, do something for us. Instead of, instead of marveling at all that Ian being proclaimed in Jesus' preaching of Isaiah 61, their posture is not one of humble and joyful submission to Christ as the one in whom the gospel was found, but rather they just demand that He do something impressive for them. The question turns as to how if he is a prophet, how is he going to benefit his hometown? What miracles is he going to do for them? It's as if they were saying to Jesus, this is all fine and well, these fine words, but, but, but prove it. Let, let's see now, Jesus. Let's see the blind get their sight back. Come on, do something great here, now in, in Nazareth. It wasn't, as we maybe be tempted to understand it, it wasn't born of what we would call an over-realized eschatology. This is not them beholding Jesus, the Savior, come and, and expecting Him now to make all things new. This isn't them understanding what He has said and, and them getting one step too far down the line and, and expecting a new heavens and a new earth to be ushered in. Now, no, this is born of a spiritual self-sufficiency. This is born of a, a, a pride that, that kicked against the truth of just how desperate and needy they were in their sin. This was born of a, a, a pride which sought to use Jesus as a means to an end, someone who might be useful to them in making their lives better, someone whose coattails they might ride so that despised backwater Nazareth might enjoy the glories that come with being the hometown of a mighty prophet. That's what Jesus is confronting them with when He cites that proverb, physician, heal thyself. And it's what He confronts them with when He cites these examples of Elijah and Elisha. The first example is that of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Do you remember the, the story? That there was a famine that came across the region for three and a half years. Devastating famine. We don't, we don't have famines. Not here. But you understand just how devastating this is. It's, it's bad if your crops fail 
one season. But if you've been wise, you have stores, and you can get through, and then you have a good harvest and all is well. But if that famine continues on for three and a half years, it's devastating. Three and a half years, you've you've eaten the crops that could be harvested, you've eaten through your stores, and you've probably eaten through the seeds for the following year. There's nothing left to harvest, and there's nothing left to plant. It's, it's catastrophic. And so, three years in, now this region is in a position of desperation. But in the midst of that suffering, God sent Elijah to bring some relief to a poor widow, but not an Israelite widow, a Gentile widow, a widow from Zarephath and Sidon. And you, and you remember the, the story, the desperation and despair of this poor woman. When Elijah came and asked her for something to eat, she responded in 1 Kings 17, verse 12. This poor woman says to Elijah, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked and only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. As far as she was aware, this was their last meal, the end of their food. And she had prepared herself mentally and emotionally that she was going to bake a last loaf of bread, and her son and her would eat it, and then they would die. There was nothing else for them. But into that utter despair, Elijah responded, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until that day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And what was the result? Verse 15, 1 Kings 17, verse 15, as she went and did as Elijah said, and she went and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This poor woman, despite her desperate circumstances, against all logic, obeys the word of the Lord as it comes to her through Elijah. And she casts herself upon the prophet, or, or more so, she casts herself upon Elijah's God, and she is abundantly provided for. From her imminent death, now comes life. Or think of the second example, the example of, of Elisha and, and Naaman in 2 Kings 5. Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, had developed leprosy, and in his desperation to find a cure, he comes to Elisha. But despite his desperate condition, he still expects Elisha to make a big deal of him, right? He's important. He's respected. He's used to the world of pomp and circumstance, the world of protocol, a world in which everyone around him reveres him. And so when he comes to Elisha, he expects that Elisha is going to do for him something impressive, that Elisha would do something great, something so great that not only would he be healed of his leprosy, but in the process, he would be publicly honored and exalted. 
an elaborate ceremony in which Naaman could sit at the center and be admired by all. But Elisha tells him that to be healed, he must do something private and and humble. He must go and, and wash in the Jordan, and it angers Naaman. It hits against his pride. 2 Kings 5, verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to Naaman saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpah, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But do you remember the courage of his ser- servants? His servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you will uh, not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Putting his pride aside, submitting in humble obedience to Elisha and to Elisha's God, his leprosy was healed. And and you hear how these examples hit right at the heart of the Nazarenes. You hear what Jesus is saying to them. The only way to benefit from Him, the only way to receive the benefits and blessings of this glorious new reality that He is ushering in, is to give up all sense of pride and self-reliance and self-dependence and self-reference. The only way to receive the riches of this new world, to receive the favor of the Lord in which the desires of our hearts are to be found is to, like the widow of Zarephath, realize just how dire your condition is in your sins. Realize the spiritual poverty of your soul in sin and entrust yourself wholly to Jesus. It is to give up your pride like Naaman, to give up the desire to be the main character, to give up the desire to have Jesus come and enhance your glory and make your life better, the desire to have Jesus come and and make a big deal out of you. It is like Naaman to realize just how awful and corrupted you have become in your sin and to humbly cast yourself on the mercies of God in Christ. But the Nazarenes wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. The cost of entry into paradise was too much for them. And instead of glorifying God and reveling in Jesus, their initial marveling turned to hatred, and they wanted to kill Him. There's been a phenomenon in recent years of, called deconstruction men, women, especially young men and women who once professed the faith, but who now not just walk away, but want to leave a trail of destruction in their wake. And they often use social media to do it, and they go on and they tell their stories of how they once had been Christians, but, but they'd been so betrayed, and how they'd been so hurt, and now they've, they've walked uh, away from the faith. But the, the tragic thing is, when you listen to their stories, you realize they've been sold a bill of goods. 
So many of them have been told that Jesus, who was going to make their lives better. So many of them have been told that if you come to Jesus, then, then you'll be released from these besetting sins. Come to Jesus, and, and you'll be healthy and, and wealthy. Come to Jesus, and, and everything will be great in your life, that Jesus is the key to an abundant and, and prosperous life. But when they continued on, and the sin did not magically vanish, as they continued on, and they, and they got hurt by people in the church, and they realized there was sin in the church, as they continued on, and they, they fought against these things, they they realized that what they'd been told was not true, and they turned away. They'd sought a Jesus that was going to make a big deal of them, a Jesus that was going to glorify them, a Jesus that was going to make their lives better. And when He didn't do it, His response was like these Nazarenes. They wanted to get rid of Him and everything associated with Him. But notice the biting irony of how this all shakes out. Verse 28, when they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. You hear, you hear the biting irony of, of this. It would, seem, it would seem that they didn't even wait for the service to end. They didn't wait for the ironic blessing. They didn't wait for the amens, but immediately blinded with rage, they lunge at Jesus mid-service on the Sabbath, on the day that was supposed to humble Israel, that was supposed to lead their hearts into the expectation of this Messiah, that was supposed to remind them, Exodus 20, that they were creatures and not the Creator, or, or, or Deuteronomy 10, that they were uh, Deuteronomy 5, that they, were, that they were redeemed by God and debtors to His mercy and grace, but on this day of all days, they come and they resolve to kill the Redeemer as He stands in their midst because the cost of following Him was too much, and it was too much to their prideful hearts. And you see how Luke puts this reaction in Nazareth over and against the reaction in wider Galilee. Jesus' preaching is bracketed with these two responses to the gospel, so that as you read this, you understand Luke is asking you this morning. Luke is asking every reader of his gospel, which way, dear reader? How will you respond to Jesus? What will you do with Him? Will you, will you glorify Him, or will you rage against Him? Will you love Him, or will you hate Him? It will be costly to love Him. It will mean admitting that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. It means admitting that you cannot save yourself. It means admitting that you don't just do bad things, but you are bad, and you are in need of being made wholly new. It means humbling yourself. It means giving up the facade of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, self-provision and self-protection. It means reckoning with your spiritual poverty. It means reckoning with how diseased your heart has become in sin. And it means coming to Jesus saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
But understand what you receive in him is nothing less than the favor of God. It is the smiling countenance of God towards you. All the guilt of your sin washed away like Naaman's leprosy. The record of your sin expunged and in its place the credit of Christ's righteousness imputed to you. It is that wonderful entrance into the new world. It is the promise of a new world to come. It is a new life of fellowship with God in which you can cease from your striving. No more need to save yourself, to justify yourself to secure yourself, a new life in which you rest in the pleasure of God, in which you rest in the presence of God, a new life of joy and worship. Oh, it will cost you everything, but you will lose nothing, and you will gain everything. So, come to Christ and humble yourself before Him and receive the riches of His kingdom we may trust Him fully, all for us to do, but those who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. Let's pray.